Great to see you all this afternoon. Let's read from John chapter 19 together. We're going to read verses 1 to 16. Thank you to the band, by the way. That was an amazing way to just lift our praise before we read the scriptures. Thank you, guys. John 19, we're reading from verses 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. It's quite a difficult passage to read, isn't it? And it's quite a difficult passage, I imagine, to preach on. I'm going to find out in the next few minutes. A rather uncomfortable chapter in the Bible. And we were talking in home group just last week about how to position John 19 and a couple of people said maybe give the explanation of how we get to John 19 so I thought great I'm always open for free advice thank you Callum I will take that free advice and I will run with it so let's consider how we get to John chapter 19 how does Jesus find himself here in front of Pilate well a few chapters earlier we've been in the upper room 
It's only hours later in time, but in the Bible, it's a number of chapters earlier. We've been in the upper room. Jesus has been with the disciples. They have had the Lord's Supper. They've done what we have done. They took communion together and they had the Passover together. Wonderful that. The lamb, the Passover lamb there with them on the day of Passover, Jesus himself bringing bread and wine with them. We have Judas there, of course. Remember the Lord Jesus said if he would betray him, he said it's he who will eat the sop, the special piece of, of bread. And we see Psalm 41 fulfilled in that. Jesus betrayed by Judas. And at the end of the upper room, Jesus says to the disciples, let's rise up and let's go out from here. And so they walk and they talk together and we have that beautiful discourse as Jesus teaches the disciples and then they pray. And then they cross the brook Kidron in John 18 and they enter into a garden called Gethsemane. Now remember, this is many chapters of the Bible. I think it's chapter, I've written it down, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. But in time, it's just hours. They've gone out from the upper room. They're walking, they're preaching. They're, the Lord's preaching to them. He's teaching them. They're praying and they go into this garden, Gethsemane. And the way that they say, let's go in, it almost sounds like it's a walled garden. And that's possibly true of Gethsemane. Or there's a gate at least and they, and they enter into this garden. Gethsemane is an interesting name because it means the oil press, the olive press. And you know where it is, don't you? It's right by the Mount of Olives. And that makes sense because they would pick olives from the Mount of Olives and they would go into the garden below Gethsemane and there they would crush the olives to make olive oil. And you think, well, that's great, Matt. Why are you telling us about this? Well, I was really interested to learn about how they got the oil out of the olives in this garden of Gethsemane that the Lord goes into to pray. And the olives would have been taken and maybe put in some sort of cloth or something similar. And then wood would be put on top and like a vessel underneath. And then weight was applied to the wood. Easy, right? You put pressure on the olives, they crush them, and the olive oil comes out. And the first set of weights go on and the first bit of oil that comes out is the extra virgin olive oil. That makes sense. It's the really good stuff, the pure stuff, and it's used in, in the Bible a, a lot for, for religious things, the, the really good oil. And then a second round of weights is applied to the wood, and the olives are crushed again. And a third round, and a fourth round, and each time you get diminishing returns of quality from the olives, until the fourth time, the oil is good for cleaning and stuff like that. And, and just in my mind, I don't know why, but I went to Isaiah 53, where it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And the word for bruise is crush. And I was thinking of Jesus in this garden, just coming out from doing this with the disciples and going in to pray with them in the very place where they crushed the olives. And is it maybe here that we're seeing Isaiah being fulfilled in a way that it pleased the Lord to crush him, that the weight of sin is pressing down upon Jesus and with his face to the ground, he prays in agony of soul, Father, let this cup pass from me. If there's any other way than, than the cross, Jesus prays for it to be done. But he prays, not my will, but your will be done. So they've come from the upper room and they've crossed this little brook, Kidron, into this garden of Gethsemane and they come in, don't they, the soldiers and Judas and Jesus betrayed with multiple kisses from Judas. What a sad, sad thing. 
He's arrested and he's bound. And Jesus is then taken that evening to Annas and then to Caiaphas, to these two men who are the high priests and figure that situation out. I don't know how that one worked. Who was the alpha? Well, I'll leave for you to discuss. And as he goes into Caiaphas, you remember Andy was preaching to us that, that John had an inside man, didn't he? Because Peter waited outside and John was like, he's with me and, and the lady on the door let him come in as well and, and they go in to hear and to listen. That's how we come to John 19. It's a fluid motion from the upper room. They come down, they're preaching, they're praying. The Lord's teaching the disciples. He goes into the garden to pray and they abandon him and he's taken by these wicked men and he's taken before these priests and now here we are in John 19 with Pilate. I'm going to frame what we're saying by reading Luke chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. The Son of Man must suffer many things. John's gospel starts with, do you remember John the Baptist pointing off to Jesus? Behold, the Lamb. And we've got a bit of a contrast here towards the end of the gospel where Pilate brings out Jesus and he says, Behold, the man. And I want us to do that today. I want that to be the focus of what we do in John 19, to behold this man, Jesus. And, and I want to unashamedly bring a challenge to everyone directly today. Behold the man, Jesus. Make up your mind today decisively who is Jesus. He is worth following. He is worth trusting. He is worth believing in. And we want to see that as we go through the passage today. So we come to John 19. And we, we, we read there in that first verse, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And if you're like me, you've probably read over this a million times and given it very little thought. Flogging was absolutely barbaric. A, a dreadful thing. To call it anything less than torture would be to try and diminish it. Flogging would have been a, a wooden handle and, and leather cords of whips, really, with maybe metal or bone stuck through the cords. And Jesus, if history records or anything to go by, would have been taken and stripped and tied over wood, essentially, some sort of frame and whipped with the cords and the metal and the bone would have lacerated the flesh and torn it and pulled it apart. And as the soldiers withdrew the whip, then the metal would then rip out and expose raw flesh. And the soldiers would take it in turns because it was so tiring, the action of flogging a man. And this is Jesus, the Son of God. We read over it, don't we, like it's nothing. They took Jesus out and had him flogged. People died doing this, and yet here is Jesus, the Son of God, they had him flogged. I think this is Pilate really trying to appease the Jews. He has Jesus flogged and beaten and stripped and mocked and spat on and violated in all sorts of ways. And they pull the beard from the face of Jesus. The, the synoptic gospels speak of Pilate's men of war, which I think is just a hideous title for these brutish men who were essentially trained in ending human life. And they toy with Jesus in an awful way. And they take together this 
crown made from thorns and they put it on the head of Jesus. And again, you'd have to read the synoptic gospels to see this. But when they put the crown on the head of Jesus, they take reeds and, and they beat the crown down into the head of Jesus. It's a sorry sight and a hard thing to read, isn't it? The king of the Jews. In verse four then, Pilate, uh, he declares Jesus innocent. He says to the crowd in verse five, behold the man. You can kind of picture the scene. You've probably been through it a million times in your head, haven't you? We probably all picture a different place and a different setting. I imagine Pilate coming out and behold the man. And, and what kind of state would the Lord Jesus have been in here? We don't know. Pilate declares him innocent and says, behold the man, look at him. Pilate's saying, this is no rebel leader. This is no man driving an uprising. This is no king. Look at him. We don't know if he could stand on his own at this point. If he was being helped up, we, we don't know. But Isaiah 52 says his face was more disfigured than the face of any other human. Jesus had been absolutely tortured. There is no other way to put it. He suffered to the extreme. Now, a lot of John chapter 19 is narrative, and it's quite difficult to bring out application from a lot of it. But I want to just make a little application here about suffering for a minute. Because Jesus foretold that he would suffer at the hands of these religious leaders and the Romans. Now, Jesus suffered. We suffer, right? It is part of the human condition to suffer. And in various forms, we have difficulties and problems. We are broken people living in a broken world with the curse of sin. We all suffer in various ways. But you know what I love about this, that we have a savior who doesn't just intellectually grasp, oh, my people might be suffering. But he has done the hard yards of first-hand personal experience of extraordinary suffering. And so when I suffer, or when I'm stressed, or when I'm anxious, or when things in life are going the wrong way that we want, and we're crying out to the Lord for help, he understands, it's Hebrews 4, isn't it? He knows our frame. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. When we suffer, Jesus has suffered. And what do you wanna do when you're going through a hard time? We talked about this at home group again a few weeks ago. You probably wanna share it with someone who's already been there because they understand your experience and they can empathize. Whatever you may have in your life today that you are finding difficult, we have a savior who bids us to come to him. The Bible says, come to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. When we suffer, we have a savior in heaven who suffered more than we have suffered and we can turn to him, our understanding, gentle, compassionate savior, Jesus, our great high priest. Isn't that wonderful? I hope that gives a bit of encouragement today. If you are going through something and maybe no one else in the room knows about it, but you, or maybe just you and your family, take it to Jesus. He's trustworthy. He can help, he can give grace, and he can help in our times of need. 
So Jesus suffered and Pilate says, behold the man. And in verse six, as they, as they look upon Jesus, as they see the disfigurement of the Lord Jesus, they insist, they cry. They say in verse seven, we've got a law, don't you know? To Pilate, we've got a law. The irony of this is unbelievable. The very people who are crying for the blood of Jesus go, we religious people, we've got a law, don't you know? Goodness me, the people who condemn Jesus for picking corn or for healing on the Sabbath, they're concerned about the law. And of course, the Passover is the senior, isn't it? And, and they're so self-righteous. We don't want to be defiled, of course, because we're so holy and so righteous. They wanted to stay clean so they could eat the Passover in the correct way. They say, we've got this law. By the law, he must die. Truly, I think they're fulfilling Isaiah here. When it says in chapter three, uh, 53, verse 3, despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Certainly this was happening to Jesus right now. He was being despised and rejected. He was familiar, also familiar with suffering and with pain. And the law in question is Leviticus 24. And that law says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And so they're saying to Pilate, our law states this man must die. He's a blasphemer because he made himself the son of God. But isn't it ironic? The very thing that they're accusing Jesus of, they're committing. They're rejecting Jesus. They're blaspheming against him. It's awful to see. They lied to get Jesus into that place. They changed money with Judas to get him there. They had their false trials through the night. It was all just one big falsehood. And blasphemy, by the way, is speaking sacrilegiously against God. That's very much what was going on here. Verse 8, as we move down the passage, the pressure is just turned up a little bit more on Pilate. And you'll notice that through the chapter as we go through, the pressure builds. It's like a boiler room. It's building and building and building. And on Pilate specifically, the pressure's turned up. Once he's heard this accusation of the Lord Jesus, that he's the son of God, the scripture says he was even more afraid. He was even more afraid. So Pilate asks an important question to Jesus. Where do you come from? There's a change here in the way Pilate speaks, I think. He's been pretty brash, hasn't he, up until now? Behold the man. And he brings him out. I find no fault in him. And he says this three times, at least as we see through the other Gospels and piece the, the story together. Why would Pilate ask Jesus where he was from? Do you remember the superscription written above the head of Jesus? Pilate made the order, Jesus of Nazareth. Pilate knew where Jesus was from. So when he hears this accusation that he's the king of the Jews, he goes in to the Lord and he says, where are you from? And why would he ask Jesus where he is from? Because he knew Jesus of Nazareth. He had it written above the head of Jesus. He's asking here about the origin of Jesus. Maybe Pilate is just piecing together all these little pieces of a puzzle, putting them all together, and the possibility has creeped into his mind. 
could this man be God? Could it be? Could the man that I've just had beaten to within an inch of his life, could he actually be God? Now Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife said to him, have nothing to do with this innocent man. I've suffered about him greatly in dreams. Also, the other parts of the Bible, as we piece them together, it said Pilate knew for envy they delivered Jesus. He's maybe putting these things together and he's seeing the venom in the crowds. And he's examined Jesus and, and at least three times he's innocent. And Pilate's maybe putting these all together and maybe the demeanor of Jesus and how he acts and how he speaks. Could it possibly be that he's God? Maybe this just creeps into the consciousness of Pilate. Where are you from? It's good for us to ask the same question today of Jesus. Where's he from? Before Bethlehem, Jesus was there. In fact, John's gospel does such a great job of explaining the eternal Godhead of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is the spoken expression of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's how John starts the, the early chapter, the early verses of John's gospel. Before the world was, Jesus was. Jesus is God. Pilate's asking, where are you from? Who are you? Hey, this question comes to me and to you today. Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? It's vital. It is vitally important. Pilate asks the Lord Jesus where he's from. He is quite literally out of this world. He is God. John goes on and he says, the word became flesh and he dwelled amongst us. We beheld his glory. Jesus is God come down from heaven to earth to be the saviour. At the start of the gospel where John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the region he came. He came to earth to die for me and for you on the cross to bear our sins away. The eternal Son of God, out of love for me and for you, suffered and bled and died on a cross. If you've read John chapter 3, you'll know who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus, I, I just love this in the Bible. He gives us a little clue into the inner workings of the, the Jewish leaders. When he meets Jesus, he says, we know, isn't that interesting, not I know, we know that you're a teacher come from God. The Jewish leaders had been speaking about Jesus in their council. We know that you're a, a teacher come from God. Why? Because no one could do the things that you do except God is with him. The evidence for Jesus being God was blatant. It was there for everyone to see. It's there for you and I today, preserved in the Bible. Jesus is God. And we've absolutely got to get this right. Who really is Jesus? Pilate did not act accordingly. He didn't worship Jesus. He didn't accept them as his savior. He didn't turn from his sins. He didn't ask to be saved. Standing in front of him that day was God in human flesh. And he sentenced him to be crucified. Well, in verse 11, 
Sorry, verse 10, Jesus refuses to speak to Pilate when he says, where are you from? Pilate reiterates his power. He says, don't you know that I've got the power to release you or the power to crucify you? And Jesus, very interestingly, he says, you would have no power at all except it was given to you from above. Jesus reiterates to Pilate, in all of this, I'm in charge, not you, Pilate. Jesus is there by free will. I love that. Do you remember Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2? I'm going to read a couple of verses from Acts 2 that remind us of what was going on here. Who was in charge? Peter said, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. And here's the bit. This man was handed over to you by God's determinate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. I love that sermon of Peter's. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. What was going on here was not Jesus being wronged and, and God's plan going out of the window. This is the eternal plan of God coming to fruition in Jesus, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God for my salvation, for your salvation, to buy our freedom from sin and its slavery, to buy us back to God by blood. This is God's plan being enacted by the Lord Jesus. All of history had been building and building and building to this day when the lamb would be slain. And I think it's probably fair to say that all of history subsequently has been looking back to Calvary, to the cross, and its shadow is large over our world, isn't it? Where salvation was purchased, where God's great, indescribable plan comes to fruition. Jesus dies in my place and in your place. It's wonderful. Through what Jesus did on the cross, God is making a whole new creation where broken people are mended and blind people see and people with no hope are given hope and people who are dead are given life and people who are in bondage from sin die to sin and are therefore liberated and set free to have abundant life and eternal life and sins are forgiven. This is the place where it happened my salvation and yours, if you're a Christian, was purchased by Jesus on the cross. It's wonderful. And in the God's new creation, all sorrow and sadness and sickness and misery will be done away with. And God's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. And we'll be with him forever. Because Jesus paid the price on the cross. I love it. This is the power of the gospel at work right here in John 19. Pilate thought he had the power, he was just a pawn really, wasn't he, on, on the chessboard. And verse 12, it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He's more fearful now, even more. The dial is ratched up again. And the Jewish leaders, this is really interesting, they changed the accusation now, right? The, the pressure on Pilate is mounting, but it's important that we get this right because we see in the narrative why. This is not now about Jewish law. Remember they said, we've got a law, by our law, he must die. 
by the way, he's the lawgiver, not them. By our law, they say, he must die. Now, they're accusing Pilate of taking sides with Jesus against Caesar. That's interesting. This becomes a political power play by the Jewish leaders. They say, well, he's making himself a king. And there's only one king, it's Caesar. And Pilate, if you're not going to crucify him, you're taking, you're taking Jesus' side against Caesar. You're a rebel, Pilate. You're rebelling against Caesar if you don't crucify Jesus. See that the way they try and twist and manipulate things because what they had already cried hadn't worked and now they changed their tune. They want him dead. And in verse 13, Pilate folds. He moves now to this seat of judgment. He's going to execute judgment in a much more formal way now, the pavement place, Gabbatha, and he's going to sit on a seat of judgment and stood before him, it's John 5, the one whom God has given all judgment to. Jesus said that in John 5. The Father has given to the Son all authority to judge. Why? that all may honor the Son. He stands here before Pilate and he sits on his seat of judgment. Does Pilate honor the Son? He doesn't, does he? Far from it. The most inhumane treatment we could probably imagine. And Pilate cries to the Jews, here is your king further mocking both Jesus and the Jews. What kind of king is this? Look at the Roman power. Look at this great military unit that we are. We've conquered the world. And by the way, here's your king, bleeding and in agony, crumpled up state of a human. It's awful to think. And they cry back to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. This is the final and the ultimate rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. These people who had waited generations. The Messiah comes and they enthrone him by crowning him with thorns. Their coronation for Jesus was to spit at him and crown him and strip him and bow their knees mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. You remember in the Old Testament, God said to Israel, I'm your king. And they were like, yeah, but we want to be like all the other nations. We want a military king. We want like a ruler king, a military guy to lead us in battle. And, and God's gone, I'm your king. And, and they, they push them out of, don't they? And God gives them a king. It's the same here, isn't it? God gives them the king and he comes right to them and lives where they live and he works with them and he eats with them and he, he, he toils with them and he suffers with them and he's joyous with them at weddings and he lives amongst them and he goes fishing with them. He's truly a man of the people and they reject him and they hate him without any cause whatsoever. There's another piece of application here before we draw things to a close. Jesus is a king. We sang of him being king of kings and, and lord of lords. And 
And that brings with it, really, royal demands. Jesus is our sovereign and our Lord and our King. He has every right to place upon us royal demands. Rob will know, because Rob grew up in the same sort of meetings that I grew up in. If you've been in the Brethren churches, you'll have heard the old preachers used to say, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. It's quite a difficult thing to live up to when you think about it. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Maybe there's some application in this for us today. As Jesus is our King, and he is our Lord, and he is our Sovereign, and he is our God, how does it look in my daily life that Jesus is my Sovereign? What do I submit to him? What do I give up for him? What would I forego for Jesus? Do you remember when Paul writes to the, the believers in Rome? He says about your bodies being laid down as a, a reasonable service. What is it for you and I to serve the King, Jesus? Maybe he's calling you to something today, to give up something, some creature comforts, to move out of your comfort zone, maybe to move to a different place, or to have some contact with a different person, or to do something, to move at the behest of the king. And do we move in sync with King Jesus? Do we enthrone him in our life? Or are we happy just to go along with pleasures and pastimes and yeah, I've got a nice life? He's king. Maybe there's a challenge in there for some of us today. So Pilate hands him over in verse 16 and he's led out to be crucified. Why did this happen? Could Jesus not have just come to earth and fulfilled the law and died as an old man? I wonder if you've ever thought of that. The scriptures say that he must suffer. Prophets looked years and years ago to see and understand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And that's the path for Christians as well, to a lesser extent, I suppose, but a path of suffering with glory to follow. Let me close with this. He was on trial. Gabbatha, as Pilate sat down in his seat of judgment, he was on trial. You say, it was Jesus of Nazareth. You've read it. Could it have been Pilate that was on trial? And could it be you and me today? Because John 19 has preserved for us in history that great scene of judgment when Pilate is faced with life's most pointed question that every other human must also face. When he brings out Jesus, and again it's in the synoptics, but he says, what will we do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Remember we read Pilate's words, behold the man. Put yourself in that place 2,000 years ago. Jesus and Pilate. Behold the man. Who is he? What is he to you? You must, there's no other way to put it, you must decide 
to either believe in Jesus and trust him as your savior or you reject him. You cannot be on the fence with Jesus. And, and why it's so important is because all of eternity hinges on this. Who is Jesus to you? He'll either be your king and your Lord and your savior or he'll be your judge. Behold the man. It's so important to trust in Jesus because he's the only one who forgives sins. He's the only one that brings us to God. He's the only one who could do what he did because he died on that cross, the perfect lamb of God. And we want to appeal today, if you're on the fence about who Jesus is, don't be like Pilate. Don't condemn him. See the evidence from the Bible. Speak to people here who can witness to you. He's alive. He's real. He's a savior. He loves you. He died for you on the cross. The day of judgment isn't going to be based on have you come to church? Have you been christened or sprinkled or baptized? Have you been in church membership? Jesus is the thing that counts forever and forever and forever. It's so serious and so sobering. John's gospel gives us a great insight that some of the gospels, the other gospels don't. And John tells us, doesn't he, why he wrote the gospel. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. Trust in Jesus today. He is a wonderful and a great saviour. Thanks, Rob.